We've been going through Genesis now for a good while. Y'all have already survived a good many of my sermons. Quite some time, yes. We will. We've been in it since the end of August. It'll probably be three Augustuses from now. <laughs> but no, we have we've discussed many um, big, meaningful, weighty topics. Last week, we really honed in on the the sovereignty of God over this entire event. That the 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 windows of heaven opening up, the uh, the depths opening up, uh, the rain coming down. All of this was at the command uh, and the authority of God. He was in control uh, of the entire event. From the beginning when He told Noah, there is a flood that's going to come. I have purpose to, um, to judge mankind, to destroy the earth. You and your sons will build an ark and you and your wife and your sons and their wives will board the ark along with animals. God was in complete control of the entire event and the outworking of the events of the flood. Um, We've also looked at, of course, Noah's obedience and his activity in building the ark. Uh, But throughout Genesis, we've uh, studied creation the fall, we've looked at Cain and Abel, we looked at that, that lineage, um, the godless lineage of Cain and the godly lineage uh, of Seth, and, and seeing God's authority and His, His will and His plan and outworking in all of those events as well. And we have looked here at the flood that yes, it was in fact God's will to judge the earth. That the thoughts and the actions of mankind was continually only evil. And God told Noah that he had purpose to to wipe out, completely destroy every breathing thing. That a flood was coming. And we have seen that flood come at this point. And so we pick it up in Genesis 8. And verse 1 says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The, the rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Now, we're going to go through the rest of chapter 8 as well. But right here in these first few verses, we're actually really picking up where we left off with the uh, the topic and the idea of God's sovereignty and complete authority over this entire situation. We're picking up where we left off in these few verses because it says, God remembered Noah. God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. The rain of heavens were 
restrained and the waters receded. So again, you see that all of this, all of nature, all of creation answers to the will and the plan and the purpose of God. So with that thought in mind, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll walk our way through the rest of the chapter as well. Let us pray. Father, we thank You once more for Your Word. God, we praise You for salvation. We praise You for justice. God, we, we praise You that You are a, a holy God that, that hates sin. And You are also a merciful God that saves sinners. God, we give You praise as the Creator of of all things. And I pray now that as we turn our attention to the 8th chapter of Genesis, God, that our hearts and minds would be, be drawn to a deeper knowledge and understanding of You, our Father. God, that we would have a, a greater wisdom from Your Word. So we pray, God, that through your spirit, you would minister to us that uh, that we would grow and mature and be strengthened. And God, I pray that we would think deeply and consider your sovereignty, your wrath and your anger against sin, as well as your mercy and your grace and your long suffering. God, that we would really consider and meditate upon who you are your attributes, your your character, God, how you interact with your covenant people. So, God, I pray that you would deal mercifully with us this morning as we come before your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When it says God remembered Noah, it says very similar to when Adam and Eve were hiding and God said, where are you? It's not as if God did not know where Adam was. Here, it's not as if God had forgotten who Noah was. And that he had to remember, oh, that's right, Noah and his sons and their wives are on that ark. I've got to do something about that. This is God remembering Noah. And you could really say remembering in a, in a covenantal way. Noah and his family. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord or found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And God had told Noah, it is with you that I will establish my covenant. And so God remembers. God acts. And God moves accordingly to His Word. His Word that He had given Noah. And uh, God does and moves and acts according to His own purposes and His own will. And so He here remembers Noah. He brings into remembrance that covenant or those promises that He Himself had given. And what does He say? Or what does he do? He made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The same God that had brought the flood in judgment and in anger and in wrath against the sinfulness and wickedness of mankind. He remembers Noah and his family and, and the livestock, the animals that were there. <clears throat> he remembers, he acts upon the fact that there was a family there are animals that God had 
preserved. In His mercy and in His grace, He preserved life even through and in the midst of the flood and His great judgment. And so now the same God that brought the flood causes a wind to blow and the rain ceases. The windows of heaven and the depths of the the deep are, are closed up. All of this, according to the eternal counsel and purposes of God. And again, like I mentioned last week, that is something that ultimately we ought to be able to find great comfort and great rest in knowing that God is truly reigning over all things. All events whatsoever come to pass, God is reigning supreme and sovereign over all of those things. And God is not going to forget His people. God is not going to forget His promises. God is not going to forget His covenant. It is not as though when things get to a certain point, God God, God Himself could say, well, there's nothing left that I can do. Or that He gets to a certain point and He says, I tried to help them. I did everything that I could for them. But... I'm at the end of my power and I'm at the end of my authority to, to do anything for them. I cannot actually fully carry out my word, fulfill my promises. No. He's the God of all creation. Everything in all of creation answers to His word, to His authority. So He remembers this and He acts upon it. The waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And so even great detail here is given. You could, you could really get in there and do the math and, and count down and, and, and connect all these things. But briefly, in that, because <clears throat> there's a lot that I, could, that I could pull out, but if we were to pull out every last little thing, we really would be here all day. And it really would be three Augustes from now until we wrapped up our series in Genesis. But I do want you to notice the numbers 150, the numbers 40, the numbers... Seven. If you were to go back and reread Genesis, Genesis six and seven, leading up to this, these numbers are repeated, and it's almost as if you see almost an exact mirroring or a reflection of what had taken place, and now, and now we're kind of walking that back, walking that back all the way up to what we're going to have as Noah and his family disembarking the ark, getting off the ark. And Noah and his family is going to be told something that should sound very familiar to each and every one of us. Be fruitful. Multiply. Don't miss that. It's almost, it's almost poetic in a way. But don't, please don't just think of it as poetic. These things are literal. These things genuinely happen. But the way that it is written for us to, to read of this and to see this, you see great design, great order, great detail, which is a testimony of the fact that God has purposed all of these things and all of these things are happening according to the purpose of His will. So verse 6 now. 
At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the earth, of the whole earth. <clears throat> so he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So you see Noah and his family at this point, I guess you could say that they were patiently awaiting the day where they could disembark, where they could enjoy the fullness of creation once again. But for the time being, the repercussions of the flood are still visible. The waters are still covering the earth. There, there is no life, no living thing except for Noah and his family and the animals aboard the ark. And they are patiently awaiting, eagerly awaiting the day that they will be able to, to, to enjoy creation, disembark, enjoy life again. And so you see the going out of the raven, going out of the dove, the return of the dove, the going out of the dove again, and then the, the olive leaf, and then the dove does not return, but another seven days. And then finally in verse 13, in the six hundred in the six hundred and first year, in the first in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, "Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you." Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Now what we just read there should sound very familiar. There are a lot of repetitions and a lot of groupings that should take us all the way back to the creation account itself. The livestock, the creeping things, the birds of the air. They were all there. And God says, go out, be fruitful, and multiply. Much the same like the creation account. But what has taken place since then is a flood that wiped out all living things from the face of the earth. The only ones that were preserved is Noah and his family and all of the animals that were aboard the ark. And now the waters that covered the entire face of the earth, now they have finally receded and they have dried out. And God says, go, be fruitful and multiply. You could almost look at this and say it's, it's as if God gave Noah and his family a fresh start or a restart, so to speak. But... What we what we see here really is almost as if Noah is like a is like a second Adam. You have Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, and they are told they're the only ones left, but they're told to go out with all of the livestock, 
So that the livestock, the animals, all of the creeping things, they can swarm upon the earth, be fruitful and multiply. Life. Death has come. Judgment has come. And now life is returning and life is meant to flourish. Life is meant to, uh, to replenish the earth. And at the very beginning of chapter 9, we're going to see that Noah and his family, they're told directly, you as well, you be fruitful, multiply. But imagine the, the joy, the anticipation, the excitement, but also maybe a, a little of fear or weightiness or sober-mindedness as this begin to sinks in, that this is, there really is no living thing left. It's just, it's just us. And the animals that God I brought aboard the ark. This is it. Imagine contemplating, and this, and this is all speculation, but this is, you know, your mind might not work the way mine works, and, and that's okay. You'd probably be really mentally exhausted if your mind worked the way that mine works sometimes. But if we consider maybe the thought at any point during the time that they were on the ark, at any point during the time that the ark had rested upon the mountains of Ararat, that they were just waiting. They're just waiting for the waters to subside. They're waiting for the earth to dry out so that they can get off the ark. Maybe they had a, fam- a family conversation about it. Maybe Noah shared with his family. Or maybe Noah just contemplated it in his own mind. Why us? Why did He save us? If Noah and his family were honest, they would have to admit that they were they they were sinful people. They've committed sins. So why why would God save anybody? And then a question that even goes beyond that, not just why would he save anybody, why would he why did he save us? Noah may have thought of maybe why why did he choose me to build the ark? And ultimately, the answer to that question is simply God's grace. His mercy. But also God's faithfulness. His faithfulness to keep His Word. His faithfulness to accomplish His own purposes. Remember once more what He told the serpent in the garden. There will be enmity between your seed and her seed. You will bruise His heel. He will bruise your head or crush your head. And that line, that lineage, from that point, from Eve, that lineage was carried on through Noah. You see God's grace and His mercy in preserving that line. You see His faithfulness to accomplish His purpose and His will. His faithfulness, ultimately, yes, here once more you say, hey, even this is connected to God's faithfulness to bring about the Messiah. Yes, it is. Even this is connected with God's faithfulness to to, uh, redeem a people through the blood of His Son. Yes, it is. And yet we're still here in the first eight chapters of Scripture. You say, Caleb, is it, is it really important for us to see all those things, to make all those connections? First off, let me say this. We're, ne- we're probably never going to make all the connections that could be made within Scripture. But is it important for us to make the connections between Old Testament passages, passages and the Gospel? Yes. Is it important for us to see the connection between Old, passages, 
Old, passage, Old Testament passages and Christ our Savior? Yes. Is it helpful? Does it strengthen our faith? Does it deepen our faith? Does it cause us to stand in awe at the glory and the wonder of God, our Father who has saved us through the Son? Yes. Does it, does it cause us to have more faith or, or a stronger faith, a, a more rooted faith to see God's faithfulness to His people and God's faithfulness to accomplish that which He has set out to accomplish? Yes. And so do not miss the beauty and the majesty and the weight of all that God is doing in this and all that God has done through just these first eight chapters of Genesis. Do not miss the connections, the foreshadowing of the gospel of Christ our Savior. Don't miss these things. Don't miss the, the plain Huge staring you in the face. Pictures of God's wrath against sin. But also. His mercy. And his grace. To save. Don't miss that. Next. We see. What Noah does. After. Disembarking. The ark. Noah built an altar to the Lord. And he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Imagine Noah and his family wondering, why us? Why did God save us? That's things that we could speculate. Did that cross their mind? Did they have family conversations about it? Did Noah meditate on those things? Did he ask those questions to God? But here's something we don't have to speculate on. When they got off the ark, Noah worshipped. I would venture to say that Noah was a man who understood he was not worthy. That... The God who had just completely judged the entire earth with a flood had preserved and saved Noah and his wife and their sons and their wives. The same God who ended life on earth preserved their life. God who had the authority and power to take life, mercifully preserved life for Noah and his family. And so Noah did the wisest and best thing he knew to do. He gave honor to God and he offered up to God burnt sacrifices. Burnt offerings. Why? To give God the glory. 
to give God the glory. To praise God as an offering to God. To acknowledge that He alone is God and He is worthy of all that we have to offer. In these burnt offerings, there's even a a foreshadowing, a, a pointing to the atoning sacrifices in the Old Testament. Once the Levitical system has been set up, and atonement is made through burnt offerings. Of course, here we don't have the Levitical system. We don't have the priesthood or anything like that. But you, you see a, a foreshadowing of that, a pointing to that. But it's an acknowledging that, I guess in its simplest terms, you could say, no, it was acknowledging. We are not worthy. You alone are worthy. You have saved us and we are going to worship. We're going to acknowledge that you alone are our God. You have the power and authority to create. You have the power and authority to destroy. You have the power and authority to take life. You have the power and authority to give life or preserve life. It also harkens back to a previous passage that we studied, the offerings of Cain and Abel. One was acceptable and one was not accepted. So you say, okay, Noah made his offering. Noah worshipped. Was it acceptable to God? What do we read? When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Noah's worship was accepted, pleasing to God. Now briefly, I want us to remember, remember the the sermon where we talked about, and, and I mentioned that I knew that it was going to make people laugh, but I wasn't bringing it up just to make people laugh or to make people feel like, oh, I've been getting it wrong for so long. Remember when we broke down the fact that of the clean animals, how many of them went onto the ark? Seven pairs, right? So did the animals go onto the ark two by two? Yes. Was there only two of every animal that went on the ark? No. Okay. And it was the clean animals. Right? The clean animals, seven pair. So if you were wondering to yourself, why would there be extra clean animals? Why would God say, take this many clean animals? What did Noah offer up? Some of each of every clean animal. There was enough for Noah to worship And to offer up those burnt offerings. It was all part of the plan and the purpose of God. Noah needed clean animals to make a right and a pleasing sacrifice to God. By the way, even that is more of a foreshadowing. There is no systematic to offerings yet. There is no systematic to the te- to temple worship yet. There is no temple yet. But all of this is a foreshadowing. Of what to come. When the Levitical system is set in place, when there is a priesthood, when there are specific offerings that are to be made, the burnt offerings, the atonement, uh, the offerings and sacrifices for atonement, it's all of clean animals. And Noah here takes some of every clean animal. And every clean bird. And offered burnt offerings. On the altar. And yes here again in a nutshell. A glimpse. 
foreshadowing? Why is it that all throughout the Old Testament that there had to be death? That there was something, an animal that was offered up that was killed and offered up for atonement? Did the blood of bulls and goats or any animal, did the, did the blood of those animals ever fully solve the problem of sin? No. It was a foreshadowing. It was a shadow of things to come. And what was that thing to come? The promised one. He said to the serpent, you will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. He will bruise your head. And Christ comes through that line, that seed of the woman. And he is killed. It was the, it pleased the father to crush the son. Why was he killed? Why was the blood shed? Why was, why did he lay down his life as a, as a sacrifice for sin? It's for sin. To Wash away sin. To redeem a people out of their sin. To pay the penalty for sin. To absorb the wrath of God against sin. The wages of sin is. So Christ absorbed. He took the wrath of God upon Himself. So that all who believe. Those that, those that belong to the Son. Will never taste the wrath of God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But here we see that Noah offers up burnt offerings. There are some of every animal, clean animal and bird that's offered up. And it is a sweet smelling, a pleasing aroma to God. The last thing I want us to really look at. He says, I'll never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done while the earth remains. Seed time, harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The thing I want us to actually put our minds to, (coughs) this might seem odd at first, but I do want us to intentionally contemplate this. Something within you may want to wrestle with this when we look at it. You may want to ponder it. You may have some questions. Look what God Himself said about the heart of man. He starts with, I'll never again curse the ground because of man. And then He says this, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now we talked about it before and we laugh about it sometimes and we chuckle about it. You don't have to teach a child to sin. You don't have to teach a child to disobey. Right? You tell a child, don't do that, don't touch that. What's the child probably going to try to do? Touch that thing. You don't have to teach a child to cry or or beg for attention. Our children, both of them, Rose has started to do this now. Wren learned at a very early age, if she, fake, if she fakes a cough, somebody's going to come pick her up and check on her. Was she really coughing? No, she just wanted to be held. Do you have, so I'm, I'm bringing that up. Do you have to teach a child to be self-absorbed? It's all about me. What do I want right now? No, you don't have to teach a child that. When children get old, get old enough to play with toys or share a sandbox with, a, with another child, do you have to teach that child to share or you have to teach that child not to share? Which one do you actually have to teach them? 
What do they do by nature? Mine. 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 You say, ah, but you can't call that evil. Is, is pride, selfishness, is that evil? Yes. Now, I'm not, this isn't to say that the children are intentionally, knowingly doing this. What does the Scripture say? We are slaves to sin. Those children are acting upon what comes instinctually, what comes naturally. What comes naturally? Sin. That's our natural disposition. We are born into sin. Now, let's focus on ourselves as adults. The fact that we oftentimes don't take sin as seriously as we need to take sin. I'll use the same exact example. When we see a child being disobedient to the parent, if they do it in a cute way, we laugh. Oh, that child's so smart. That, oh, that was adorable. What? Disobedient? Disobedience to parents is adorable if the child does it in a cute way? No. And, and I listen, again, I know. You may have thoughts. You may be asking questions. You may think Caleb's crazy. He's taking this rate way too seriously. If it's sin, we should hate it. And so I'm only using this as an example to say, oftentimes we as adults, we don't take sin as seriously as we ought to take it. In fact, if a child is involved, if that child is disobedient, but then does something cute or witty, we just laugh it off. Oh, kids will be kids. Now, it's still wickedness. And here's what happens. The two-year-old, the three-year-old, the four-year-old does it, and it's adorable. It's cute. But then when they're 12 or 13 or 14, you say, how did that child grow up to act like that? It could be because when they were two, three, four, five, everybody was laughing at it and acting like it was no big deal. But then all of a sudden it becomes a big deal? No. It's a big deal when they're young too. We as adults, we oftentimes don't look upon sin the way we ought to look upon sin. But the point, the main point being made here is we need to ask ourselves, at what point, if you've ever wondered that, at what point do our hearts become bad? Is there, a, is there a point where our hearts become bad? or you know What does it mean that we're born in sin? What does it mean that we're slaves to sin? Well, we could just use the words of God Himself and say, well, the intention of man's heart is evil from youth. See, a lot of times we consider evil to be something that you know, when we see people that are actually openly saying, well, I worship Satan or I try to speak to the dead or I believe in demons and I and I have a Ouija book. We say, oh, that's evil. That's what evil is. Disobedience, disobedience towards your parents is evil. Gossip is evil. Doing things for your own self glory is evil. Doing things simply because they make you feel good whether they're sinful or not is evil. Worshipping yourself, doing what you want at all times is evil. And that's why God destroyed the earth with a flood. He looked upon the wickedness of man and it was evil continually. Here he says, 
I'll never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So it's going, it, in a way, it's as if he's explaining that it's going to be this way. Sinfulness, wickedness, it's going to be there because the intention of man's heart is evil from youth. But he also says, Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And here we are. Thousands of years later. Do we see seed time and harvest? Do we see cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night? Has it ceased? God has been faithful. God has not broken His Word. God has not gone back on what He told Noah. But just as true as seed time harvest, day and night, cold and heat, summer, winter, just as that is true and we're still reaping the benefits of that promise that was given to Noah, we also see equally as true is the intentions of man's heart is evil from their youth. And there's nothing new in that either. Just as we have day and night and time and seasons and cycles, round and round we go. Man's heart is evil. You say, Caleb, why would you, why would you want us to think about that? Why would you want us to, to really consider the evil intentions of man's heart? None of us deserves to be saved. Noah worshipped when he got off the ark. He worshipped when he got off the ark. And as I said earlier, I would venture to say that Noah was probably a man that understood he did not deserve, he did not earn his right to be the one who built the ark and was saved. Noah's life being preserved ultimately had nothing to do with him. You said, now wait a minute, Caleb. Noah, he had to put the labor and the effort in to build the ark. And he, you know, his sons helped him. And so they had to do, they were obedient, yes. But ultimately, whose plan was it for the ark to be built? God's. Who gave Noah and his sons the know-how and the instructions to build the ark in a precise way? God. <clears throat> uh. Who was, uh, who was ultimately the deciding factor in if the ark would even work or not? Who made sure that the ark did keep his family above water and dry in the ark and safe and secure? God. So, hear what I'm saying. Ultimately, Noah and his family's salvation through the flood, they're, 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 the fact they were saved through the flood, preserved through God's judgment, that the wrath of God did not befall them and take their life as it did everyone else's life, was ultimately simply because it was God's will to save. And Noah was a man of faith. He was a man of faith. He was obedient and had faith. When God told him this is going to happen, Noah acted. Noah did. Noah was moved to action because his faith that God was true and that God was really God and God said something was going to happen. Noah's faith in that drove him to action. So was, was Noah obedient? Yes. Is there anything we can learn from Noah's obedience? 
Yes. Is Noah a wonderful example to us that we still look to that example thousands of years later? Is he an example of faithful obedience? Yes. Does that have anything to do ultimately with the fact that Noah and his family were spared from the wrath of God? No. God told him, you're going to build the ark. You and your family are going to be on the ark. God gave him the message of salvation. This is how it's going to work. This is what's going to happen. You and your family are going to be on board. And because Noah believed that message, that information that was given to him, he was moved to action. But whose purpose was it? Whose plan was it the entire time? God's. And so it is with us. Nothing that we do, none of our efforts have anything to do ultimately with our salvation. When was the day that you that you made yourself fully comprehend and understand the gospel? You can't give me a day because you didn't do it. When was the day that you brought yourself to your knees in conviction and you told yourself that you had to repent and you finally understood it and you finally grasped it? When was the day that you convicted yourself of sin and you turned to Christ in repentance and faith? You can't give me a day. At least I hope not. Because you didn't bring yourself that conviction of sin. God did. And you could, you could break that on down in so many different ways. If you grew up in a if you grew up in a Christian home, who was it that decided that you would have believing parents that would teach you the gospel from an early age? Did you did you decide that before you were born? You said, I wanted to be born to Christian parents, and so I declare and I decree that I'm going to be born to Christian parents. No. That was God's mercy and his grace in your life that you were born to believing parents. Again, I mentioned this time and time again, Psalm 139, one of my favorite passages in all the scripture in that passage you'll see the words in your book they were written uh, the days that were formed for me before I ever lived any of them if we are saved here today it has everything to do with God's grace and mercy it was his purpose his will and his intention to save sinners through the finished work of Christ his son. And he set that plan forth right there in Genesis chapter 3. When he told the serpent, you'll bruise his heel and he'll bruise your head. It has been God's plan from the outset to glorify Christ, to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ, in the Son. It has always been the will of the Father. To give Christ preeminence in all things. And everything that we're reading, yes, even here through the first eight chapters of Genesis, are all part of that great eternal purpose of God. To give preeminence to the Son in all things, including the salvation of sinners that comes through the shedding of His blood. Our salvation is ultimately for the glory of God through the Son. Consider these things. Meditate upon these things. See the sovereignty of God, the severity of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. And see, yes, actually take time to contemplate this. See 
our own sinfulness in the flesh and consider the fact that God would even save us at all and what his purpose and intentions were. Consider the miraculous fact that a holy God would save even one sinner and spare him from his wrath. May God be glorified. Let's close in a word of prayer.